John the Baptist. So this painting, it's done by Matthias Grunewald, a German who, he lived in the late 1400s, mid-1500s, which if you're a history buff, that's the Reformation time frame. So we don't actually know if he became a Lutheran or not. Uh, we know that when he died, there were like Lutheran materials in his room. Um, but uh, uh, don't know if he, uh, if, if he uh, stood up to anything. We also know that almost everything that he painted was lost when the Swedes came and they invaded and they took all of his, almost all of his artwork and the ship sank. So, I mean, it's, it's really sad. Um, but this is, this is, I think, my favorite painting of John the Baptist. And uh, uh, it's, it's actually part of a larger piece. You might see some writing on there. Um, that's Latin, roughly, for he must increase and I must decrease. This is something that John would say later about Jesus. But this, this painting is actually part of a larger piece. It's part of the Eisenheim altarpiece. And he painted this between uh, 1512 and 1516. Stop and think about that. The next time you're like, I want this project done. Because that, that's me all the time, like when I'm writing and stuff. I want to be done. You know, and uh, uh, four years, probably maybe even five years, you know, because stretching across those years, to, uh, to put together this incredible masterpiece that is the Eisenheim Altarpiece, And I will show you more of that in a little bit later. But part of what I really like about this image is, boy, there's John. He's got the word in one hand and that long finger pointing. And it's really not difficult to imagine him saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world especially with the, the lamb that's there at his feet. This is a symbol that comes to us from the book of Revelation, and uh, it, it's a very common symbol. Um, throughout the church here, you will see this, uh, this lamb carrying a cross. And uh, the chalice, can you see the chalice right there? With the blood coming out of the lamb into the chalice. This is a symbol that points us to the Lord's Supper as well. And... Uh, it's a great image, but I also think that sometimes when we think about Jesus as the Lamb of God, that, uh, that we get a little bit, I don't know, uh, a little bit confused about what, what does this mean for Jesus to be the Lamb of God? Because we have this romantic notion about lambs because they're cute. But at Jesus' time, uh, they, they would not have had those notions. I think that we're more formed by uh, poems like William Blake's The Lamb. Maybe you remember this. Maybe you've heard this before. Uh, Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the streams and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the veils rejoice. Well, doesn't that sound sweet? But, but take a look at, at the way that uh, the Bible talks about lambs and talks about particularly this idea of the Lamb of God. And I would take you back to Genesis 22. 
Genesis 22 is the account of Abraham and Isaac. And if you don't know the story, it goes something like this. Isaac was born to Abraham and, and to Abraham's wife, Sarah, when they were old. Abraham was 99. Sarah was 90. They had waited their entire lives for this child. And God tells Abraham, take Isaac, your son, your only son, the one that you love, to a place that I will show you and sacrifice him there to me. And Abraham does. He takes him. And he takes him out into this wilderness. He goes up on this mountain. And and Isaac himself carries the, the wood that will be used to burn his body as a sacrifice. And he gets up there and Abraham's ready to sacrifice Isaac. And an angel intervenes and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Do not harm the child. It's a picture of what God himself would do with Jesus. That Jesus would carry the wood. That would be his death. That he would die to atone for our sins because that's what sacrifices are for, are they not? To pay for sins. And it says that Abraham stayed his hand and he looked up. He looked up. And there in the thicket was a ram caught by its horns. Now, on the way up, Isaac wasn't stupid. He's looking around, and he's like, hey, Dad, I see the fire, uh, I see the knife. I don't, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham said to him, God himself will provide the lamb. And, and there in the thicket is that adult ram that God provided. It's all a picture of what God himself would do with Jesus to give his son as the sacrifice to save our children and to save us. Go forward in history a little bit to what Bob was referring to, Exodus 11 and 12, the, the Passover. That's what we call it now, because it sounds nicer than the plague of the firstborn. When God passed over the houses of Israel, the houses that were marked with the blood of a lamb. And God took every firstborn son from every house that was not marked with the blood. That's what the Lamb of God does. It causes God's wrath to pass over those marked by that blood. These are important images as we think about what does it mean when John the Baptist points his finger at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because to be the Lamb of God is to be the sacrifice that rescues you from death. To be the Lamb of God is to be the sacrifice that saves you from slavery to sin. 
To be the Lamb of God, Jesus would have to bear the sins of the whole world. Now, let me show you the rest of this picture. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a powerful image. And one of the things that really kind of strikes me about it is it's, it's actually a little bit grotesque, isn't it? I mean, you see the despair uh, on the left of the picture with John and Mary and Mary recounting that those three were at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. We, we, we see Jesus and he's contorted, distorted. He's too long. He's too big. He, he, he dominates the picture and, and, and the, the proportions aren't right. And there stands John, who, by the way, is dead by this point. He was not there at the foot of the cross. Calmly holding God's word, pointing and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. John points us to a mighty victim. Jesus is the victim of the sacrifice. And it's important for him to be so. Not, you know, I'm, I'm not big on this, this whole victim mentality that is really kind of filling our culture at, at the moment where, you know, anytime somebody says something to somebody else, you know, well, that's an act of violence against me. Okay, you know, but here, here's the thing. Jesus actually came to be a victim. When, when, we, when we cheapen uh, uh, the, the experience of people who actually face victimization, we, we, we weaken the experience and, and we, we don't give it the value that it really deserves. And there is real victimization in our world. There's victimization of children. You know, as... As the debate continues in our country you know, over abortion, there are real issues of victimization of children involved with that. There, there, there are issues of victimization with schools, with kids coming hungry and being in fear of, of, of being harmed. There are other issues of victimization of children in our world. How many of you have a smartphone? I'm recording this sermon on one right now. And I got to tell you, I have some angst about this and about electric cars. Because do you know that those batteries are built on the slavery of children who go down into radioactive pits? That is real victimization. And there's victimization of women, trafficked, objectified, sexual and physical abuse. And, and there's victimization of 
economics in our world and victimization in our political systems and all forms of injustice and all the symptoms of, of sin in the world that, that, remember what Jesus said about the thief? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Do we not see this? In all of these systems around us in the world, in the way that it impacts real people. And somewhere in all of this, there is something where you are powerless. Where you cannot help yourself. Where, where you need someone to intervene. And friends, that's why Jesus came. To stand and to be the victim, a mighty victim, a victim who is mightier than all the victimizers. And he allows this to happen to himself. He allows it to happen because by allowing it to happen, he rescues every victim of sin, every victim of death, every victim of our own brokenness and rebellion. And John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How, how, how do you respond to that mighty victim? I think first and foremost, as we come together as, as Christians in this congregation, we give him what he asks for, our sin. There, there's a, a great old hymn that was written in the, the early 1800s. It goes like this. I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains. Clean in his blood most precious till not a spot remains. Bring your sin to Jesus. That's why he goes to the cross. Give it to him. Let him take it from you because he's the victim who can bear it in order to save you. And having had that forgiveness, maybe it's time for us to do some finger pointing. Not the finger pointing that the church often does, where we're going, look at their sin, look at their guilt. But to point weirdly elongated fingers at the one who bore the world's sin. At the one who bore your sin. Because that, that, that's what John was doing, right? Right? He was pointing people not just to a Savior, but to his Savior. And so when he was walking with his disciples the next day, 
he points at Jesus again and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And they left him to follow Jesus. Because that's what John was about. And what a good mission for us to point people to Jesus that they might follow him and know him as the victim that bears their sin and gives them everlasting life. Amen.